sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Get involved in the show. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. And you can check us out online, wearethestoryguys.com. You and I have been friends for what now? Like 12 years? I was trying to do the math on this. Is it 2005? I think it was 10. 2010. The specifics the specifics don't matter. Yeah, so it's been it's been a dozen years at least. Well and in that time we've had a lot of conversations, both just, you know, like normal people and also on microphones. But in right. all all that time, I'm not sure we've ever really talked about video games. Have we ever done that? Oh my god, no. Why has this not happened? Uh, well, and how and how am I going? How is this conversation going to go with you having a conversation in this case, if I may, <coughs> with a senior citizen, <laughs> i.e., me, and then you who are like, yeah, I've had multiple playstations. Well, okay, it, it may it may not be as disparate as you think, and I, I was going to say there definitely is an age gap here. So you were probably an arcade and Atari kid if you sort of played in that space at all, right? Yeah, I was a coin op person, and then Atari twenty six hundred, Atari fifty two hundred, and then any NES. And, and, and I don't know if you know this, but if you grew up in a conservative Christian household and your dad was a preacher, you were ten years behind the time. So we actually are the same age when it comes to video games. <laughs> so did you get an Atari twenty six hundred when you were seventeen, Brian? Yeah, I got one when I was like twelve, ten or oh, eleven, man. something like that. That's a, River yeah, Raid? Right. Did you ever play River Raid? That was my jam. I have I have a mod of it on yeah I ha- I have a, a thing downloaded on it right now Dude, now R- I can play River Raid it. it was my so favorite good. my favorite Activision game uh yeah and Stampede was a close second but uh my favorite was definitely River Raid as well um, Pitfall two the second Pitfall not the first one oh that's stupid yeah the second one had had a had a goal <laughs> I don't know what the first one was <laughs> jump over the alligator don't die um. But in the second one, your goal was to find his sister. Oh, okay. Um, and I did that, and it's one of those games where it just ends. Yeah. Yeah, it's just all of a sudden they ran out of space on the cartridge. Uh, I was telling my kids, we watched E.T. the other night, and I was telling them about the video game catastrophe that was E.T., and everyone thought I was lying. I had to look it up on the internet to prove it to them that that was real. That's not actually what we're here to talk about today, though. If you don't know about that, do yourself a favor and Google. Uh, I will say, it took me a long time to have access to the stuff that was current when I was of the age that I should have been experiencing it. But I did have friends who had Nintendos and Segas. And so I, I basically got okay at the basic stuff. Like, I was never a video game guy. I never got super deep into it. But I did play Super Mario Brothers 1 and 3 especially, and to a lesser degree, some Sonic the Hedgehog. Did you ever play Sonic the Hedgehog? I played Sonic because my roommate, freshman roommate in college had a Sega, and he had Sonic, and he also had a rated R or worse Sega game. Oh, really? What was it? That starred Dana Plato. It was like a this DVD type of thing, and Dana, Dana Plato from Different Strokes was in what? the game. What? 
And like, I don't know if she got nude or what it was, but it was like a dirty game. Like it was like I'm 18 or 19. Like it was a dirty thing to own. And I didn't own it. It was my roommate, Jack. Sure. That's what we always um, say. It's not mine. It's my roommate's. That's always what you say. That's fine. No, I, it was pretty easy to say it was Jack's. <laughs> wasn't mine. I didn't bring video games to college. I wasn't coming to video <laughs> coming to college to play video games. Well, I, did you ever play? I, I'm getting specific here, but did you ever play Sonic Three? No, I never got there. Okay, that was the one with Knuckles. Um, and I'm asking this for a specific reason. This line of questioning actually leads us to a listener letter from a guy named Paul in Minnesota. And and Paul, it seems, was a big video game kid in the 90s. And he has a very specific rock and roll related question. Hmm. And here it is. Okay. Guys, thank you for the show. I love it. I wanted to ask if you know anything about the rumors around the music in Sonic 3. Oh, my God. This is fun. I heard once that Michael Jackson wrote some of the songs, but that sounds crazy. What yeah, do you does, know? Right. But not too crazy. Have you ever heard this before? Yeah. I've heard that, but I, I don't have. I don't know how I can substantiate it to a real thing. But I remember hearing that that Michael Jackson had worked with Sega on music for a Sonic game. But okay. I, but also I didn't play it. And by the time that came out, like I was definitely not dialed into Michael Jackson at that time. I was well. And, and up top, let's just deviate from the notes for a moment and let's make something clear that video game music, quote unquote in a video game like Sonic the Hedgehog 3, um, it's not as straightforward and cut and dry as to whether or not it sounds like something else because it's a lot of... You know what I mean? Like, it's not like... It would be pretty indisputable if I played you as... Like, if you know, now you turn on a video game and it starts with a song. It's like basically a rock song, right? Like, it's the same thing that you would hear anywhere else in another medium. Video games at this time... That's not the case. There was literal car- cartridge space that yeah. had to be taken up for the audio along with the video. And, you know, all those things were limited. And so the music was like different. So the idea of a guy like Michael Jackson, who's big and bombastic and having these massive world tours at the time, like making this music that then gets condensed into a video game cartridge is like interesting. It's an interesting idea. Yeah. Now, when I started looking into this, I found a piece that was published back in 2016 via the Huffington Post. And it profiles this British kid named Ben, who happened to be a huge fan of two things as a kid. It just, his interests lined up. He was really into Sonic and Michael Jackson. Hmm, And he comes up with this crackpot theory in the mid nineties that MJ was involved in the music for that video game. And he like starts trying to compare different pieces of music from the two entities. Again, like I said, not as straightforward as it sounds. It was this quasi serious pursuit. But in the mid-90s, the average kid doesn't have a way to proliferate a seemingly crackpot theory. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. So it right. takes it takes until 2003 for him to, for technology and Ben to meet, and now he gets to put this theory... On a, on a GeoCity site. On a GeoCity site. I honestly yeah. think it might have been. And one of the great musical myths of the internet age is born. So, due to Paul's prodding, what we are here to discuss today is was Ben correct? Would it be amazing if Michael Jackson wrote that? Anyway, that might be a better claim to fame. I will say that's a 
that's a hot jam. Also, we should talk. Like, I don't have a uh, a moment set aside here to just talk about video game music in general, but we should shout out to the great Bit Brigade. Have you ever seen Bit Brigade? No, I have not. Although I am very aware of people making money with video game music. So, Bit Brigade, for those who do not know, is a touring rock and roll act who comes to most major and mid-level metropolitan cities like at least once or twice a year. And usually when they show up at a 200, 300-person capacity club, they will play the soundtrack to a video game like Sonic 3 or Mega Man 6 or Contra from start to finish with real live rock and roll instruments. It's like a it's a whole thing that they do. I have not seen it in person. I always say I'm going to go because they do literally come about twice a year. One day we're going to have to do it. Yeah, that sounds like interesting. I hope their wives like them. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I don't even know where to start. This is like sort of a big thing. So we'll start with Sonic the Hedgehog himself. Uh, to do that, we have to start with a console, of course. You mentioned this. What What did your roommate show up with? Besides the dirty video game, he showed up with a Sega Genesis. Sega Genesis and the complete Ghetto Boys discography. Not related, but keep going. <laughs> sounds like a great roommate. I'm pro this guy. Uh, so Sega is a video game company in Japan, if you just don't know anything about Sega. And at the time here, in the late 80s, early 90s, they're very irritated because they don't feel like they're being taken seriously by the company that they think is their competition. I don't know if you've ever worked for a company that was the underdog. Most of my career has been working for underdogs. And we're always irritated when the overdog doesn't notice us, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, sort of the case here. So uh, the company we're referring to, of course, is a company called Nintendo. And at this time, they are owning the video game market, and they barely even know Sega exists. So Sega tries to do stuff to get attention. And one thing they do is they launch an ad campaign, which I thought was made up when I read about it. Genesis does. 16-bit arcade graphics. You can't do this on Nintendo. Genesis does. 16-bit sports action. You can't do XG. this on Nintendo. Joe Montana free, Pat Riley free, Buster Douglas free, Super Monaco GP free, or Collins free. What Nintendo? Bicycle. Did he say Buster Douglas? What's hap- what happened? That's the guy that knocked out that beat Tyson? Yeah, yeah that, it's a Buster is- Douglas video game. So this is their strategy at the time. Their strategy at the time is to, is to partner with celebrities and make high graphic video games that are very clearly better playing experiences than Nintendo. That's so right. they're investing in it. But the problem is this is a classic company or classic case of a company focusing on the wrong thing. They're telling the audience that they want better graphics, but the audience doesn't care at this point, right? They want extreme playability. And that's something that the Nintendo's already mastered because they've been using their games to tell the story of a very specific character, a plumber and his brother who become the unlikely rescuers of a captured princess. That's right. And they do like Italian food, I think. So Sega decides to shift strategy. They get some leadership changes at different parts of the company. And they decide that instead of going to these third-party companies and just porting over Sega versions of Nintendo titles or going to celebrities and trying to create games around them, they decide to try to make their own equivalent to Mario. And if we can get nerdy for a second, I find this part very fascinating. So... I imagine that they went they went down to the programmers 
Or maybe they asked the programmers who else they knew that programmed that could bring them something. Bring me something I've never seen. So this programmer shows up and he says, here's my idea. I've got this prototype for a program. And I don't know how rudimentary it is at the time that he shows it. But basically, he shows this he, the little computer character. And he's like, I've, I've written this program that can make this character from, go from like regular form into mm. a ball and then fly like he's going through a tube. Yeah. And they're like... Exceptionally great idea. And they're like, this is what we're going to build our entire empire around. This technology. So, you know, if you follow the timeline, Mario 3 is out at this point. And so there is some rolling that Mario does a little bit in Mario 3, but nothing like this. And so they go, go to work, bring me a character that can roll into a ball. And so they start with a rabbit and they, they're like, here's the concept. It's a rabbit. He can grab stuff with his ears and then they can't get the hardware to quite do that (laughs) because there's something about the ears. They can do the ball. They can't do the ears. So they end up instead making a hedgehog. Which is the first thing I think of when I wake up every day. What would I like to be? Yeah, that certainly was a stretch, but I'm glad they went there. Now, now, remember, this is all a very commercial uh, gambit that they're on here. This is very much about beating Nintendo. So everything, it's like at this point, they call in the marketing department. They're like, what color is he? Well, the logo is blue, so this guy needs to be blue. So they make him blue to match the logo. And the whole plan is they're going to make Sega synonymous with Sonic, and it works. I mean, when I think Sega, I see Sonic the Hedgehog. Literally. Yes. Yeah, together. Me now, too. he's also wearing red and white shoes. And if you ask the designers that were very upfront about this, do you know why he was wearing red and white shoes? Uh, so they weren't all stars. Does it have anything to do with, with Mario and Luigi? No, it has to do with Michael Jackson. <sighs> They said the it was inspired by the bad album cover. Oh, now the your your bud is mine record. This That's is what I always think of now. <laughs> this is a great place to just remind you that in in the late eighties, Michael Jackson is the biggest and the baddest, all puns intended. He is the tip top of pop cultural superstar to a level I would argue that barely exists in twenty twenty two. Yeah, right. Easy. It's uh, Elvis, but better. So this is the first connection we see between the King of Pop and the savior of the Sega brand, but it's a pretty big leap to assume that just because MJ inadvertently offered up some fashion pointers that suddenly all of a sudden he's composing the soundtrack. So how do we get to there from here? Well, to do that, we have to leave the early 90s in Japan, and we're going to go all the way back to the very early 80s in America. Mark Murdoch, welcome to Tempe, Arizona. Oh, well, great. Have you ever been in Tempe? You ever been to Tempe, Arizona? No, I've been to Phoenix and Flagstaff, but I've never been to Tempe. Part of the Phoenix Metro. Now, Tempe proper is only like 200,000 people, but the Metro of Phoenix is like 4 million. So it's uniquely positioned to punch a little bit above its weight class in a lot of areas. And that's certainly something that happens in its music scene. Harder question. Can you name any bands from Tempe, Arizona? From Tempe, Arizona. So tell me who's there. So their current export is a fun little alt-pop band that you may or may not have heard uh, called The Main, who I like. 
okay. sort of earwormy guitar pop stuff, great live band. Tempe's known for a few other musical exports. One of them, and I'm just so excited I get to play this song on this show, is this band. So just how far down do you want to go? Well, we could talk it out over a cup wow. of joe and you could look deep into my eyes like I was a supermodel. Uh-huh. <laughs> God, I love that song. Uh, that, of course, is The Refreshments. Uh, yeah. You, you might know him for the King of the Hill theme song, too. Yeah. That's, that's the other yeah. big hit. Yep. Uh, there's another band, though, that was uh, a, a lot bigger and really sort of helped change the landscape of 90s popular music. Wrong answers only. Oh, my God. You know, isn't it weird that they're named after the thing that really is the thing that's on people's faces from drinking too much alcohol? <laughs> gin Blossoms, that's what that is. So the Gin Blossoms are arguably the most important band to come from Tempe. Uh, and I know your mileage may vary with the Gin Blossoms. I personally have a have a real lovely relationship with especially the first two records. Um, but I bring them up because as big as you might think their uh, their footprint has been in popular music and as much as you may or may not like them, they, Robin uh, Wilson and the band, do not think of themselves as the premium export from Tempe. Let me actually read you a quote from Robin. I remember when I first joined the Gin Blossoms and someone said, hey, that's Robin. He's in a local group called the Gin Blossoms. They're almost as good as the Jetsons. Man, I remember hearing that, and at the time, just to be considered in the same breath as those guys was better than selling a million records. That's how important they were. Wow. Wait, the Jetsons? What? I don't know. Who? Who is that? Okay. Not me. So first, let me spell it. J-E-T-Z-O-N-S. So not exactly like George and Judy, though I'm sure they were the inspiration. The Jetsons. Meet George Jetson. Were a new wave group. His boy Elroy. I had a t-shirt when I was a kid that said that on it. I loved it. His son. A dog. I forget all the words. Jane's his wife. Sorry. So the Jetsons were a new wave group that formed in 1981 out of the ashes of a band called Billy Clone and the Same, which is also a great name for a band. That was a great name. Now, why break up Billy Clone? Well, the lead singer was a guy named Mike Corte, the brains of the operation, and he died of a heroin overdose. So that's why. Uh, And it left guitarist Bruce Connolly and bassist Damon Dorian looking for a new team to join. So they meet and recruit a drummer named Steve Galladay and a keyboard player named Brad Buxer. And these guys move to LA and they put together an EP and people dig it. And they are the Jetsons. But there is a problem. Usually, if you've got one heroin addict in a band, you probably have two. <laughs> that was, yeah, it's kind of... That was the case. They come in pairs. That was the case. Mike Corte uh, was not the only member of Billy Clone who had a penchant for that stuff. The guitar player, Bruce Connolly, also an addict. And it gets so bad that the group can't tour or really even functionally record because they can't get them to do anything. So the Jetsons fizzle out, but they become this thing of legend. There are roughly nine songs that exist from this band. In the last like few-ish years, I can't remember exactly how long ago it was, but fairly recently, these songs have been remastered and put out. And so you can find them all on Spotify if you want to listen to them. There are like roughly nine of them. But 
they made enough of an impact to define success for a guy like Robin Wilson, which is sort of a crazy thing to think about. Yeah, totally. Now, what happens to these other guys who don't have a drug problem in the Jetsons? Well, they all go on to try other bands. Some of them stick around Tempe. There's several other. If you're from Tempe, you probably know about these other bands um, and what came out of of them. Um, none of them get a lot get get really big beyond a regional sort of success. But there is Brad Buxer, and he, if you remember, I said, is the keyboard player, and that's a special skill for someone inside the music scene in the very early '80s because mm-hmm. he plays the synths. He rocks. He plays a, a skinny piano tie. He rocks the. I hope he does. He rocks the keyboard, and maybe even the guitar. I did not find that on record, but I'm going to just assume. And we all know that that's very important in the '80s. So he's in LA and he starts taking studio gigs. Uh, one of the first things he does after the Jetsons is he plays on a Matthew Wilder song on that poor second oh. album that no one liked. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Also shouts, let's just play music trivia for people playing along at home who'd like random facts. Uh, what quintessential, the genre-defining 90s alt-rock record did Matthew Wilder produce? Oh, that's right. Who is that? I forgot about it. It's Tragic Kingdom, by no doubt. Oh, by no doubt. Isn't that weird? That's wild. Okay, so he he plays with Matthew Wilder, and then he gets in with Stevie Wonder as a touring musician. (laughs) And he gets to tour. And you know who hangs out with Stevie Wonder sometimes? Michael Jackson? Uh, Yeah, that's right. And Brad describes it like this in an interview years later. He says, quote, I will never forget my first encounter with Michael. A current immediately passed between us. Musically speaking, we were on the same wavelength. We spoke the same language and purely human. We instantly became friends. Bonds were created naturally and they have only strengthened over time. And that is how the keyboard player from Tempe, Arizona, who thought his career had gotten sunk by not one but two heroin addicts, finds himself being appointed keyboardist, arranger, and touring music director for Michael freaking Jackson. Oh my gosh. What a weird twist of fate that is. Man, that's crazy. All right. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I love talking about rock and roll history. Not as fond about talking about my immune system and my gut health. But if you get in a situation where you are having problems with those things, it becomes very, very important. So let's get you in a place where you're not having problems with those things. I say that because Athletic Greens was created by a guy who experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on this complicated supplement routine that cost him 100 bucks a day. And he said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And that's when he came up with this. It costs you less than $3 a day. It's lifestyle friendly. doesn't matter if you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free like half of my house. Any of that is fine. This will still work for you, and it's going to do things to help your nervous system, your gut health, your immune system, your energy, your recovery, your focus, all that stuff. Find out. It's simple. All you have to do is head over to athleticgreens.com slash emerging and take ownership over your health and pick up a little daily nutritional insurance. They're going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do, athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Now, back to the show. Hey, by the way, random, do you know that I I, I saw an interview with T-Pain, and T-Pain said that Michael Jackson has like a real person voice, and the voice we always say is just big put on. 
Really? The vo- yeah, the voice that you hear. Like- <laughs> he really has like a regular, like a regular ass voice. I think you just gave and- me next week's episode. How do we prove there's this? A, there's a cl- there's a clip where he wins an award and he goes up and goes, um, well, um, and he like raises his. He like does he he changes the regular voice into the high pitch high pitch Eric or Alvin the Chipmunk voice or whatever the hell you want to call Michael Jackson's weird voice. Uh, so that's amazing. Thank you for yeah. that. Now I now I feel like there will be more research after I'm done here. Okay, how does this all circle back to Sega and Sonic? That sort of becomes the question, right? Yeah. Why Take would us there? Why please. would anyone think there is a connection between Michael Jackson and Sega to begin with? Well, remember that commercial I mentioned about Sega doing what Nintendo don't? Yes. And remember how I said that they like to partner with celebrities at that yeah. at that point in the late 80s? Yeah, Buster well, Douglas. Yeah, Buster Douglas. And also, one of the games shown in that clip, if you go watch this clip, because it's in the show notes, you will see a game called Moonwalker. Moonwalk. That's right. There was a Michael Jackson game. Uh, now, I got to ask you, do you remember the Moonwalker film? The fil- Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, when was the last time you revisited that thing? I only watched it once. Tell me about that viewing experience. Um, I saw it, uh, I guess, after he was he had passed away. Okay, so and later, much later. Yeah, yeah, and and so so all of it was a little strange. Um, okay, I can think of no other description than batshit. Like MJ and his team decide to make this weird ass musical anthology film to support the bad album and tour. Remember when I said he was like top of the world, tip top of the world? This is this is what I mean. Because he this makes no sense what they decide to do. They end up with this very strange product. And it's so strange that they can't even get it into theaters in the US. He's the biggest pop star in the world, and it won't get a theatrical release. It gets a theatrical release in like a couple other countries, but in the US it goes to home video. If you want to watch clips, search for it on YouTube, but you're not going to find it very many other places because it's never been released on DVD, let alone Blu-ray, in the U.S. Mm, Interesting. Now, like I said, it's an anthology, which means there's a bunch of little pieces, and they sort of are connected, but not really. And in the middle of this weird pastiche of short films and music videos and whatnot, there is a segment called Smooth Criminal. I'm going to resist the urge to get really bogged down in this part because I really want to, but basically Smooth Criminal is a 15-minute short film you can watch on YouTube or in the show notes. Yes, and it is awesome. It is the story of Michael Jackson rescuing some children from the grips of a drug dealer played by Joe Pesci who is trying to get all the kids hooked on narcotics. It is wonderful. (laughs) It is effing wild, dude. Effing wild. There was a there was a an article or a piece the other day about Alien Ant Farm and about how like, oh I read that they, yeah yeah they, yeah and and uh, I was talking with someone about it and they're like you know they're totally underrated band like they just think they, they hit it big with a Michael Jackson cover and I mean I immediately I was like did you see that long Michael Michael Jackson ass video for a Smooth Criminal and they had no idea what I was talking about I was like it's the extended one where Joe Pesci's in it and they were like what are you talking what? about. <laughs> So and it wasn't and it wasn't like Joe Pesci from Goodfellas. It was like the guy from Home Alone. Like that was where that went to immediately. I was like, yes, the guy from Home Alone. Now, to be frank, that plot in retrospect makes us all a little uncomfortable. I think uh, he, yeah. he's rescuing these poor children. Uh, but not only is this the plot that drives 
the movie. This is the plot that drives the video game. You are Michael Jackson beating up henchmen and trying to rescue children. And oh my gosh. oddly, this is a bit of an aside, but in the research, I like I couldn't pass this up. I had to put this in. So this wasn't the first attempt at making a video game out of Moonwalker. So Den of Geek has a great write-up. I dropped it in the show notes. And it's about this British company. And the thing in the 80s is, like... Your ability to license things for video games was like way loose, loose because video games were still like sort of early, right? So they, there was this British company that like made a habit of finding IP, basically like early IP, things that like already had some sort of presence in the market and making a video game out of it. And so they were like, oh, we're going to make a video game out of uh, this movie. And so they, they actually get Michael Jackson's people to sign off on it. That was the one caveat is Michael Jackson's people had to sign off on it. But this story that Den of Geek has is that the, the reason Michael Jackson's people signed off on it is that this company sent a guy to America to show it to them in person. And the night before, and it goes into great detail of how this happened, but the guy runs into and shatters a glass door and gets completely destroyed, like cut up. And the night, that's the night before the meeting. So he shows up to the meeting bleeding with like bandages all over. And the guys are like, they don't even look at the video game. Michael Jackson's lawyers are just like, cool, whatever, man. And they just sign it and send him back to the UK. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It is the weirdest story. Uh, and it's in the notes. Den of Geek. Check that out. Um, really strange. Okay. Anyway, like I said, that's an aside. But I bring this all up to say that MJ does indeed have a history with the company Sega. And when they introduce Sonic the Hedgehog, he's really into it. And here's the timeline. 1990, uh-huh. Moonwalker comes out. 1991, Sega switches. With the thing I already described, they sort of switched their strategy. They land on a mascot-driven game of their own. They create Sonic the Hedgehog. And they, and they turn these things out fast. So that's 91. 92, Sonic 2 comes out. And around this time, Jackson is fanboying, and he's so famous he can do whatever he wants. So he actually calls Sega's offices, and I think this is like why he's on tour, and he asks if he can have a tour. So he shows up. They like don't have a real receptionist. One of the guys that's an executive at the time calls his daughter to come in and pretend to be the secretary. Yeah. That's how, how ill-equipped they are to do this. And they give him a tour. And I point out that they're ill-equipped to give him the tour because sometime on the tour, one of the programmers, probably because he's a bit starstruck and ill-equipped for all of this, uh, one of the developers asks Michael Jackson if he wants to help write music for the new Sonic game they're working on. And now here is Brad Buxer, our buddy from Tempe, who was in the Jetsons, confirming this years later in an interview. I was working with Michael on the Dangerous album, and he told me he was going to do the Sonic the Hedgehog soundtrack for Sonic 3 and asked if I would help him with it. Uh, uh, that's so crazy. Holy cow. The keyboard player from Tempe and Michael frickin' Jackson are soundtracking Sonic. <laughs> so Was it was it credited, or was it, is this no. one of those things where... So we're going to get to that, but that's why this mystery... Because like, you're, you're, you're like, okay... You have all this intel that this happened. This all has come 
like fairly recently, like in the last few years, this has all come out. And the, uh, if you look at the credits, Michael Jackson's name is nowhere on it. And so that's part of the reason this is perpetuated for 30 years as this big rumor, because according to the company, Michael Jackson did not participate. And there's still some, like, we're going to get there, but there's some people will tell you different things. So Jackson tells Brad Buxer to find some guys to help. And Buxer's living at the time with two other musicians. They have a studio in their house, Bobby Brooks and Doug Grigsby. And so they jump on board, of course. And then he finds three more guys, Daryl Ross, Jeff Grace, and Sirocco Jones. And now I'm going to read from the Huff Popies. Quote, it was a big secret, a former Sega executive remembers. Sega, quote, didn't want the word to get out at all. He says Sega gave Jackson a demo of the game, and then, quote, he took it from there and started making music. Still in the Huff Popies. For around four weeks in 1993, Jackson and his team worked out of Record One Studio in California, creating something like 41 tracks, or cues, as they're called in the video game world. Wow. Jones, who's one of the musicians, remembers Jackson calling him sometimes late at night to share ideas and sing melodies that would eventually make it into the game. One thing I read is that a lot of what what these guys were doing was Jackson would walk in and be like, and then they would like turn it into music. And like he was literally, they said a lot of what they came up with for these cues was beatboxing. Like he would beatbox breaks and stuff. That's interesting. Oh my gosh. Could you imagine what happened if the human beatbox had lived a little longer in the fat boys, then died, and then Michael Jackson had replaced him and became a member of the fat boys. <laughs> and it would be ironically named because it's like, you know, this, the two bigger guys and Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson so was I sometimes human wonder, beatbox. I sometimes wonder if you or I had access to a time machine, like if we wake up tomorrow, there's a time machine. I think this is what we would do. I think we would go screw with musical history in the most insignificant way and we might like destroy the world by accident. We'd be like, well, what if we just change this one detail to sit Michael Jackson into the fat boys instead of on the trajectory of his own. Right. I, I'm telling you, if I get in that time machine tomorrow, dude, what I'm doing is I'm making one of the biggest hits of the 20th century doing to butt by EU. That should be like the <laughs> biggest song of like the last quarter century. Easy. Um, that's what be my first decision. Let's see how, let's see how society changes. If that song is more popular than stairway to heaven. So you've already asked me this, but why was this a mystery? It's been confirmed. It's been backed up. Why did it used to be disputed? And why is it Michael Jackson's name in the credits? Now, I'm reading this again from an official piece. Sega maintains it never worked with Jackson on Sonic 3 and is, quote, not in the position to respond to questions about allegations to the contrary allegations they're saying it's an allegation to say that he worked on this game quote we have nothing to comment on the case the company said but why and the answer depends on who you ask now is it a non-disclosure agreement or one version of the story is that michael jackson was not satisfied with the final product the more in-depth version of this has to do with the fact that basically and we, i sort of touched on this at the beginning but the group he assembled made full songs. And so in video industry, video game speak, they call that high profile. They made a high profile version. So that might sound like something we would listen to. But to fit on the 1993 second game, these songs had to be compressed. 
The game had to be visual first. Graphics take up most of the cartridge space. We talked about this. So, boom, you got this compressed version of the song. Yeah. So, the explanation is that when Jackson heard the final product, he said he didn't want to be part of it if it was going to sound like that. So, hey, he was like, you guys who all worked on it, you can put your names on it. Take my name off. And this is the version of the story that Buxer and all those musicians stick to when asked. Because they are who is credited in the Sonic 3 credits. Brad Buxer and those other five guys I mentioned. So that's one version of the story. And if you ask Brad, that's that's the only thing. Michael didn't like how it came out. He just said, take my name off of it. Sega had always said, we're keeping this under wraps, so we just never made it public, and then people figured it out. That's their story. If you could give a name to the second version, what would the name of this hypothesis be the one that's probably real okay let's hear that um remember that ex sega executive that i mentioned he's quoted a lot in one of these articles Mm -hmm. and he has a different version of this story you know who else besides sega wanted to take something up with michael jackson in the months while he was working on this music in 1993 who else wanted to take michael jackson up and do something who wanted to have a conversation with him nintendo no, a Bronx-born dentist and screenwriter named Evan Chandler. This is the guy who will first accuse Jackson of molesting his 13-year-old son. Oh, yeah. And wow. that, that ex-Sega exec, he says, quote, we had to replace it all. Oh, it's all replaced. And he claims that to do this, they hire a guy named Howard Jurassen. Now, Here's what I have to point out to you. These other guys, Brad Buxer and the like, are all saying that their music that they created with Michael Jackson is in the game. These guys from Sega all say we, okay, so maybe Michael Jackson helped, but we took all of it out because we didn't want to be embroiled in this scandal. But this dude, Howard Drossen, the Huff Poe actually gets Drossen to talk on the record. And he says that when he gets hired, he thinks he gets to work with Jackson but as the charges come out, it ends up changing, and he gets shipped this game that already has a bunch of music in it. And he cleans up some of it, but he does not replace it all. And so, despite what Sega claims publicly, Brad Buxer and his team of musicians will all vouch and verify that Michael Jackson was a big part of writing the music that, to this day, soundtracks Sonic 3. Oh, man. I mean, I, I remember kind of hearing this, but I mean, imagine when I was hearing this. Yeah. I was, I was hearing this when... I was playing a telephone game without the World Wide right, Web, basically. Right, in the early 90s, mid-90s. Yeah, yeah well, early 90s. And in fact, if you need any more proof, check the show notes for the for this uh, piece on YouTube where they overlay this stuff. Jackson songs and Sonic songs. So you can sort of hear it. Ooh, oh, that's neat. But uh, the, the big, the, the cat that's totally out of the bag is that there is a song by Jackson that comes out later i want to say it's late 90s it's called stranger in moscow and the closing credits to sonic 3 and stranger in moscow are based on the same template they're the same thing and and brad buxer is quick to admit that he and jackson created both of these and the sonic tune was the basis for what becomes stranger in moscow but here's the here's the cherry on the sunday all right to bring this full circle Brad Buxer even got to have a little fun on his own and celebrate his new wave heritage. 
if you play the ice cap zone level in Sonic 3, yes. you'll hear the hook from an old, long unreleased Jetson song. Oh, man. Called, I remember the level. It's called Hard Times. Tim the Arizona lives on. So he put his song in that level? He put his song in that level. And you can now find Hard Times. It, it has been released, so you can go and listen to the original Hard Times, and then you can go listen to Ice Cap Zone. It's so weird how someone so important can be involved in something that really in the main scheme of things is insignificant, really. And then they're not really, it's not publicized. It's crazy. And and now in everything that I read, I didn't see a single thing about him getting paid. Yeah. Why? I mean, I assume that he did. I assume he got paid in some way, shape or form. I mean, surely Brad Buxer and those guys got paid. Yeah, I don't know if Michael Jackson understood the concept of money. But yeah, like that's a really interesting part of this too. Is that like it's not about the money? He wanted to he wanted to do this, and he wanted to be a part of it. And so, I mean, you can choose which version of this you believe. Uh, you know, I've read things that say they sort of think both versions are true, right? And it's a lot of times with these rock and roll rumors, this is what we find is that there's a little bit of truth in in every part that you come across. So did he not like the way it sounded and have his name removed, but also knew it would be very prudent to not put up a fight because Sega was probably telling him that they didn't really want his name on it? I mean, that's probably all true. But you can't yeah. you can't convince me that Sega didn't say we don't want his name on this right now. Yeah, I mean if that time if that time period wraps up like that, yeah, it makes sense, total sense. I mean, he's I losing mean, Pepsi endorsements and all sorts of major stuff at this point. Yeah, yeah. It somehow came unscathed uh, for quite a while through it. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, do you, know I, who di- do you know who died the same day as Michael Jackson? You know, do you know who died? Remind me. Yeah, like right. No one remembers. It's, <laughs> right, Farrah, 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 Farrah Fawcett died the same day. Yeah, that's right. Like, did I ever have a poster of Michael Jackson on my wall? Nope, but I certainly had a Farrah Fawcett poster on my wall for sure did you have the farrah fawcett sega video game no (laughs) (laughs) but we all wish we did we all wish we did yeah yeah but i i did get to play the dana plato (laughs) whatever game i'll look that up and i'll share that it's uh, Uh, wow i'm it's terrible all right that's Uh, great that's great hey thanks for the thanks for the letter too if you've got one it's we are the story guys at gmail.com hit us up we will do the research for you and until next time what do people need to keep doing keep playing video games with michael jackson zombie or telling stories Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.